Hello, Chioma. Welcome. Thank you. It's so good to have you here. Welcome to the unknown unknown. And to our audience, this is my friend and sometimes colleague, Chioma Ume. So good to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. And I'm going to tell you and everyone listening a little bit about the show, and then we'll, um, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. And I'm going to ask you questions about asking people questions. So it's all very fitting. <laughs> so Unknown Unknown is about exploring alternative sources of information, as in not just books we're reading and not just our rational mind, but other things. And we focus a lot on mediumship and psychic work as a place to gather information. And we also talk a lot about um, not having a supremacy of information that we don't just have one that we rely on all the time, but trying to diversify where we get our information to help us make better decisions. So everybody, Chioma is a design researcher and brand strategist and death doula. And so we have worked together in, you know, I call it my rational career. So on her side, design research and brand strategy. Uh, and I do really similar things and we've worked together and then found out, I don't know, months after we'd been working together that we both have interests in a, a less rational side of life as in the death side. And we're so amazed that, you know, we had this in common and didn't know because when you're in the more corporate world, you don't always talk about these things. So um, I'm really excited because Shioma gets, has a brain a little bit like mine and sees these two different sides of, of the world. And I'm so excited to talk to you. So Shioma, welcome. Thank and you. maybe you can start by just telling everybody just a little about yourself. Where are you in the world? What do you love to do? Just give us a little sense of what your life is like. Sure. Um, so I am currently talking to you from New York City, but I live in San Francisco, California. And so I guess I spend some of my time doing things that feel stereotypical of people who live in the Bay Area, aka being outside. I have a number of bicycles, which I like to ride. I was baking sourdough long before our pandemic entrapment, but have always loved to bake and cook. And I spend a lot of time doing that. Um, I'm a dual citizen. And so I also am Canadian and Nigerian and I am biracial. So I spend a lot of time in liminal spaces, which maybe is something <laughs> the topic of this, this uh, conversation can identify with. Absolutely. Get right to it. The liminal space, my friend. Like, I love it. Um, I want to talk about it from a few perspectives because I actually think, and this is a question for you, like our work in design research and human-centered design actually is kind of a liminal space and it involves a lot of liminal spaces too. And now I realize we should probably let everybody know what that means. What does design researcher mean? Sure, this is a good test for me to articulate it. <laughs> so I would say pretty simply that design research is understanding about people in service of creating something out in the world. So that could be something as simple as like the water bottle I have in front of me, or it could be the experience in the hotel that I'm staying at right now. But really the goal is to understand what people need, what motivates them, what they aspire to in service of taking that information and translating it to things that happen in the world. And so it's a form of, well, it can be qualitative and quantitative research. So it could be numbers and it can also be patterns and feelings, but unlike some other forms of research, I guess, it's the distinguishing factor is what it's being used for, which is design. That was very beautifully articulated. I have struggled to articulate this for years. It's it's a challenge, um, but that, that was beautiful. Um, and yeah, so do you think the kind of work we do with design research and strategy work um, actually does line up to this kind of comfort or 
continuous present in liminality? You know, it's interesting because I personally think so. Absolutely. Like my perspective in life has been that there really isn't such thing as binary, but I think that the tension is in the space of strategy or in the space of even research, there's a presumption that you can get to an answer. So people want to know, like, how does a Black woman who likes to shop at Whole Foods, who has one dog and makes X amount of money, what is she going to do around this product? And it can be very reductive, the expectation that people fit into confines that we know nobody really does. So I think liminality is always operative, that we really, we transcend the borders of things like personas. We transcend what happens in life transcends the borders of strategies that you put on a page. But I don't know that there's always a shared understanding of that that's articulated. The thing that's articulated is the desire for more certainty. And I do find that attention in the work. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And do you think people get into design research and, and human-centered design more because they like this approach or because they have a personality type that's like, I'm kind of liminal, I'm into this kind of thing. Like, it seems like this supports my approach and my belief in the world that like uncertainty isn't everywhere and we need to get used to that. Hmm. That's tough because I'd say I've met people who do this work from all different perspectives. And there's definitely a bunch of people who feel the same. I remember once at a former job when we had all the design researchers get together, I think what surprised us is that we all were like quite emotional, <laughs> kind of feely people. And the introductions that we had as icebreakers for each other made us all kind of open our eyes be like wait a second <laughs> you're like this too so that might also be where we worked you know there's a few things that might be compounding that but that's not a clean answer either yes and no yes I, and no I agree I agree um in my experience there's both but I know I learned about it and was like oh my god this like you know I was in a kind of hardcore science program in undergrad and it was like there's an option to include humans like it just was like oh humans yes I like that <laughs> yeah I absolutely get it I think the first time I had heard about human-centered design specifically was when I was working in international development and I would always see that we would talk a lot about strategies and theories of change and what we were going to do, but what always seemed to be missing was people. And what also seemed to be missing as a related to the design process and probably what spoke to me is trying. Like design is an iterative process. So you don't presuppose what the outcome is before you do it. And that was really resonant for me. I felt like focusing on people and trying till you get it right in a less um, high stakes failure way would be a really great way to work. So that's why it intrigued me. Absolutely. And that like that brings up the other side. So I'm kind of, I haven't gone directly to it, but I find in mediumship my work with um I, the unseen world, if you want to put it that way, really has those two qualities of, you know, one, there's no certainty. There's absolutely zero certainty involved. You know, even if you are doing highly evidential mediumship, you still don't have the kind of certainty we're used to having, right? Like mm -hmm. even when something goes exactly right and you, you know, you can bring out this wild information that kind of proves that you're getting something from a spirit, like you still don't know, right? You just, it's a, it's just, an uncertain world. And then the other is that in order to figure out how to do it, at least in my case, and most of the people I know who do it, you have to practice. You just have to do it and you have to do it over and over and over until you learn. And mm -hmm. these are things that are hard. I think they're not really part of our regular culture. And as I'm so grateful for the kind of work we do and working with people like you that, you know, 
this is how we operate. Yeah, I I totally agree. When you were saying that, I thought, yeah, because this is so countercultural, at least counter the Western culture that we're in. And I remember reading, it was a book, I think the book might be called The Wayfarers. It's this uh, anthropologist, his name is Wade Davis, I want to say, but he talked about the Polynesians and how when they crossed the ocean, they were able to do that by the people who would read at the front of the boat, they put their hands in the water and looking at the stars and like feeling the current was how they could navigate across a giant ocean. And the top line thing he said about that is that it's an accident of history that ours is the dominant paradigm as a way of knowing. And that's always stuck with me that like, it's kind of an accident that this is how we understand the world and everyone at least in our culture, not everybody, but in Western culture kind of aligns around a certain set of ideas, but they could have been other ideas. So I always think that. I, you know, I didn't used to think that. And actually that's one of the reasons like I do this show because when those thoughts started to come to me, I was like totally blown away by it because, you know, it seems so entrenched here and it does seem like the only way, unless you're reading books like that or I don't know if you've read um, Dawn of a New, what is it called? It's sitting right in front of me, but I can't see the title. Um, there's a book that came out a couple of years ago, like the, a, a New History of Everything, basically. The Dawn of Everything, that's what it's called. Mm. Have you heard of that book? I haven't. Um, it basically reformats all of our paradigms for history and like changes everything. And it kind of does something like what you, you just said of, this was just one thing, you know, like, and I actually, I kind of think it's shifting because, you know, stuff like what we do in our work is, well, it is counterculture and it's very small compared to the large world of research or the large world of strategy. Um, it's pretty normal. Like, you know, it's a pretty accepted, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, more so than the other stuff we're talking about, about being a death dealer <laughs> medium. <laughs> That's really true. But I, I think like accepting some of the uncertainty and it, I don't know, I always feel like, well, that's part of being human. And I think there is something that resonates with us that there are so many things beyond what we understand or maybe what we're able to know that it leaves open a possibility. I like to think like a space that there could be something else. I totally agree. Totally. But it's something I've had to uh, teach my mind, I'd say. I think my body as a being was like, yeah, of course, mm -hmm. but my mind had to be convinced. Do you have tips for that? <laughs> How do you teach yourself that? Um, I, I think mediumship really kind of, kind of forced me to. Um, and it's, I'd say the hardest thing about mediumship is, is that part of like, accepting that I don't know what's going on and that that doesn't mean I shouldn't do it that means I don't know what's going on <laughs> you know um so that sounds uncomfortable just listening to it right <laughs> even after all that I said yeah 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 so mm -hmm. uh it's going sort of a human-centered design approach where you just keep doing it and I hope at some point I'll either stop asking the question I don't think I'll ever get an answer at least about mediumship you know yeah, it's, that's a, it's a lifelong thing. I, I agree. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, one of the things I really wanted to talk about with you was actually interviewing mm -hmm. because I think it's a skill that is, it's hard to learn. Uh, it's, it's not actually that it takes a lot of practice. How about that? Um, and it's a huge part of, of design research. And I actually see it as a really important part of mediumship as well. And since you're such a pro at it, I thought asking you a few questions about how to interview would help people who are learning mediumship and use this same style of you kind of interview the spirits to get more information. So for me, information doesn't just like all come and I, ha I have to ask questions about it. And so I want to ask you, like, when you're doing an interview, 
do you, how much do you prepare? And like, what's, what do you do in the moment to like get yourself into the mode of asking questions and then listening? Cause that's not really how we usually operate. Mm -hmm. Both are good questions. So to answer the first, usually when I'm gonna do an interview, I understand or I articulate to myself, why am I doing this? What is it that I'm hoping to understand? And what's the goal of the conversation? I find it difficult to adhere to a script. I also find it pretty hard to talk to people when I have a list of things that I'm getting through. So I find it easier personally to hold the shape of what I'm really trying to understand in my head. And then that way, that touch point can always guide me back to like, oh yeah, the conversation, maybe it needs to move in this direction because this is why we're here. So that's the answer to the first part in terms of how I think about it. And what was the second? Do you do anything to prepare like yeah. as you're sitting down sort of? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it depends on what type of conversation I'm having. But I would say if I'm having a conversation with somebody about a sensitive issue, I often will try to meditate or like kind of clear myself a little bit before that conversation. And that's not something, I think that's something that's been born out of some of my non-research work, truly, not so much the core of my research practice, but I find it easier to pay attention when I have stopped thinking about other things in my life and have decided to make my attention be fully on the person that I'm talking to. I don't know that this is especially helpful, but I feel like I heard somebody say once, like, you fall in love a little bit with everybody that you interview. And I think that can go only so far, but I really do um, think about that when I talk to people that there's always something interesting, redeeming, worthy of exploration in a conversation with anybody that I start having a conversation with. So I really, from that point, think about treating them like they are the center of the universe that I have for the time that we are talking with each other. Oh, I love that so much for so many reasons. And <laughs> I, I find something similar of this. It's just a mindset of the, what an interview is, is like, I'm talking to you to learn from you. And that just like sets up a nice dynamic. Um, and what about more you mentioned a little bit about sensitive conversations like how do you help people get comfortable and you know kind of work through harder questions well generally the strategy is to be as human as possible so when I start a conversation asking people big things about themselves like what are you interested in? What are the things that you love? Asking questions that people generally have a relatively easy time talking about and thinking about questions from that perspective, from easy questions to more difficult questions so that you're getting to the harder stuff when the person is more comfortable talking to you, more comfortable with the structure of the conversation. And so that can make it easier. I also really center people. So like you said, you know, I'm here to push you to the center of the, the universe. So I really try my best to impart that on people. You're the expert in your own life. You're the one who I'm learning from. There aren't really wrong answers in this conversation as a way of helping people understand the context and maybe even telling them like why we're here, what I'm hoping to learn about generally and why, so that people have a sense of, okay, that's why we're talking about this difficult thing. And I guess lastly, I feel like I'm talking a lot now, but lastly, giving people an out. So especially if it's something sensitive, letting people know that they don't have to keep talking about it if they're not comfortable and that that's okay, like within our relationship or the reason that we're talking to each other for them not to answer or to stop. Yeah, I love it. And I want you to talk as much as possible. <laughs> don't stop yourself. Okay. <laughs> and what do you do if, it's difficult to understand each other. I think this is one of the big things in mediumship is you're trying to communicate with something that is not communicating with you through your physical senses. And you have to figure out a way to understand each other. And I'm wondering if you have any, I don't know, experiences or, or 
thoughts when I ask that? Hmm. That one is more challenging. I think from the context of the work that I do, a lot of times I'm asking people questions in a setting where I'm expecting them to respond to me verbally most of the time. Sometimes um, understanding that people's brains work differently and people do things differently than I might show things. It's a little, you can still do that in the digital world. It's a little harder, but I, I do do research in the physical world where people can show me things, take me places, interact with me beyond like a one-on-one, I ask you a question and you answer. So that, that can be a really great way of learning a lot of things that you didn't expect to learn. So I really like it when there's more freedom in the space. When it comes to someone who's difficult to understand, I guess my ba- basic approach would be just to try to keep asking why and getting people to explain themselves more <laughs> as it's available or to talk, to keep talking. So if they're talking about something, I don't quite get it, letting them keep talking to see if I can hear a clue. And this actually reminds me of, I used to be a lawyer and I worked as a criminal defense lawyer, a public defender. And I had a client who had a lot a pretty severe mental illness he would come in and he would talk to me and he would show me things and say things. And I never really got what was going on, but I felt like there were clues in what he was saying. And eventually I really, I found them. I was able to piece together like something that happened at a pharmacy and essentially an interaction that happened that he wasn't able to tell me, but he was showing me documents and telling me fragments of the story. And then eventually I was able to call the pharmacy and get have a conversation with someone who was there who could communicate it to me. So I guess that's another way that sometimes if you listen enough, wow. you can get clues that will let you find out more information through another person, which has been true. Less so in my research practice, but in interviewing in the past, that's definitely happened. I love that example because you are just, your curiosity is leading the the day, right? Like you're like, I'm still looking, I'm looking, I'm looking and you coming from a place of there is something there. I believe this person, I trust this person, you know, they want to inform me and they're doing their best and how, you know, how can I sift through it all and find more? And that's, no wonder you're so good at this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's also like you said, in mediumship, maybe knowing that you might not get there and being okay with the fact that you might not be able to understand. And I mean, to me, that feels like table stakes. Most of the things that happen around me, I don't understand. (laughs) So to expect that I'm just gonna understand what anybody I interview is telling me feels aspirational. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And then you talked a little bit about your your history. Um, Every time you remind me that you used to also be a lawyer, I'm. I'm amazed again. Um, How did you learn interviewing? Like, were you just like this as a kid or did you take classes? Hmm. Well, I think you'd have to interview some other people in my life (laughs) to know if I was like this as a kid. Probably. I definitely talked a lot. I'm sure a lot of that, like most kids, is asking things. Um, I, I would say I've learned to interview through a lot of different experiences in my career. So law being an example, I did learn a lot about how to ask open-ended questions or closed-ended questions, depending on the strategy. When you want to learn, you keep it open. When you don't want to learn, you ask for confirmation. So I learned the strategy of thinking about why you're talking to someone in the first place. Like I said at the beginning, like as I think about interviewing now, I still ask myself that question. What's the point here? What am I trying to understand and move towards? So that when I start talking, I know what types of questions to ask and where I'm headed. I would also say that law really helps me in terms of the pause. So I am guessing, although I have no experience with mediumship, that this is applicable there too, because if you stop, people will generally keep talking, at least in like the human temporal world. So if you just wait often to a place that's uncomfortable, 
people will keep going. And generally in that moment, you're going to get more interesting stuff. And if you're really concerned about asking your next question and like pushing it forward. So that's a great strategy. I use it all the time <laughs> and it gets a lot of information. <laughs> it is absolutely super, super important. I actually, I would say in mediumship, because if you are in that rushed place, like it does, you just don't get a chance. And in to get the rest of the information, you know, and it's the same thing in an interview, actually. So maybe it's not more important in mediumship, but, mm -hmm. you know, that's where people get a chance to rest for a moment and you see what comes up. And it, it is definitely a practice, though, because it's socially uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It's also socially uncomfortable to not know what you're going to say next. And, you know, you made a distinction between a conversation and an interview, which is absolutely true. A lot of times in conversation, we're thinking about what I'm going to say in response to what somebody is saying. But in an interview, listening is the better approach. So there is a trust there in yourself and in that person that if you just hear what they're saying, there's another question or something to learn embedded in it. If you're busy thinking about what's next, then you're not paying attention to what's happening in that moment. And so not only are you missing the opportunity to like give somebody space to say more, you're missing the opportunity to hear what somebody's saying and really respond to them. And the way I said, I think that I've learned this in multiple ways is, you know, I've been a yoga teacher, which is very much a pause center space. And also in the end of life work that basic like communication and mirroring and listening helps you to think about what type of conversation you're in and what role you should have in that conversation. And especially when it comes to interviewing, it's a listening, a listening role. Wow. I, I want to get into your death doula work, but first I have to say, you just explained to me why I say interviewing is part of mediumship because that is the exact key. If you go into mediumship with a list of questions, it's not going to work, but you have to listen and then come up with a question at the end. It is the only way to do it. Uh, at least in my experience, I haven't ever um, tried coming. I mean, it just doesn't even make sense to come in with a list of questions, but <laughs> it's uh, that's different. And I didn't know, I never really thought of it. So thank you for that. Um, that's brilliant. So yes, let's talk about your end of life work. And first, just give us a little, a little bit about of the story. How did you get into that? Yeah, um, I would say it's the confluence of two things, one that is ongoing in my life. So I want to say I can't remember the year because I've lost track of like how time works in the last X yeah. amount of years. <laughs> but when my grandfather was dying, he was in hospital in Edmonton where my mother's family is from. And I had never been with anybody as they passed, but my mom had called, said he was in the hospital. He didn't want any more treatment. So we knew it was coming. And so I got to the hospital, my mom and her brothers were there, some of his siblings were there. And effectively over the course of let's say 48 hours at the most, we effectively had a vigil at his bedside. And it was my mom and her brothers and then eventually one of my brothers came. And it was a very nerve wracking time, having never seen somebody die, not really knowing what to expect, not knowing you know, can they hear me? Are they responding? When is this going to happen? If I go get a drink, will I miss it? And I remember in the middle of the night, this nurse came in and we were all sitting in chairs in the room around his hospital bed and she brought us warm blankets. And I remember being so moved by it because we were all there to care for my grandfather. And I assumed that that was the orientation of the hospital staff too. But to have somebody be thinking about us in that moment and caring for us, even that small gesture, it's never left me because it was such a surprise and a comfort at a time that was so disorienting in my life. 
And so the other thing that was happening simultaneous to that is my father had a diagnosis of Parkinson's maybe about 12 years ago now. So it was still pretty early in his diagnosis, but for me, it was one of the first times that I confronted the idea of the mortality of my parents. And I think by extension myself, you know, it starts to close in your grandparents. Okay, they're older, you expect it. But as it starts to get closer in, I think I was trying to grapple with how to move forward with that knowledge and how to prepare. <laughs> Sounds so foolish now, but then I thought like, how am I going to prepare for this great upheaval? And so <laughs> telling this long story, I used to work at a design firm and um, we helped BJ Miller, who used to be the executive director of the Zen Hospice Center with a TED talk that he had done. And it was playing in our office. And he told an anecdote that I'm sure you can hear in that TED talk if you want to look it up, or I'm sure he's used it in other interviews. But he talked about how at the hospice, they will do things like play music, there's a piano there, or they will bake cookies just so that the smell of cookies is in the air so that even when people can't eat them anymore, the last senses of like hearing and smell would give them things that remind them of comfort and of beauty. And I was so moved by hearing that description of what was happening in the hospice that I knew I had to go there. And so I started volunteering at the Zen Hospice in San Francisco, probably like six or seven years ago, maybe longer now at the guest house that they used to have that had five rooms. And I used to cook in the kitchen for the guests of the guest house and also their families. And so that was the beginning of my journey into this realm and yeah, this, this type of work. Wow. It's a beautiful story. And was it something like, as you started to get interested, you're like, this makes sense. Or were you like, wow, I never thought I'd do something like this or somewhere. I had never thought of it before. Honestly, I hadn't, but I'm a very emotional person disguised in a tremendously logical person. (laughs) (laughs) So when I heard him say that, like I said, I was like, I have to be there. And I didn't really second guess it. And I wasn't really afraid of it until, of course, then I had to show up, you know, like, oh, wait, I'm going to go to a hospice every week. Hang on. But I didn't think twice and I had never thought about it before. Wow. Yeah. And then you, you did a training program to, to be a death doula. And just for those who don't know, can you tell us a little bit about what a death doula is and maybe what your training was like? As you bring that up, it reminds me of how, even though I've been a design researcher for like a decade, if you ask my friends what I do, who are not in the field, they'll be like, I think she makes slippers or something, which is exactly. not true. But then I've chosen to like <laughs> study and be a death doula, which is essentially just as confused <laughs> everybody in my life. So <laughs> great question. Um, I was just listening to a podcast where they were talking about a birth doula who actually does supports women who are pregnant, no matter the outcome that they're hoping for or what happens. So through miscarriage, et cetera. And really at the core, I think of death doula and all doula work is just support. It's not a medical role, not an advice role. It's a see the person in front of you, help understand what it is that they need and then be a support so that that happens. And so many people do that so many different ways. So in the sphere of end of life or death doulas, that's people who help you make legacy projects. You know, if you wanna make an album or a recording or an art project around your life for people to remember you by, it could be somebody who helps you with a vigil. So thinking about your last moments and how exactly you want those to be orchestrated, maybe staying with you, holding your hand, like being in that room, helping you light the candles, put the pictures up that you might wanna have there. It could be supporting you with 
food or conversations with your family, the, the list is really quite endless. And what I'd say is that what I've seen is that people who are deaf doulas usually pair that with another skill they have. So yeah. you see people who are therapists and then they're practicing maybe grief counseling and also deaf doula or people who are artists and then they're doing legacy projects and also being a deaf doula. So people who are educators, <laughs> then they're training other people on how to have these conversations. So there's so many different roles based on what type of support people have and want to give. Mm. I wish we had doulas for everything. I wish Honestly. <laughs> like how our society functioned and that like people supported that all these hard things we're always doing. Yeah, that's a really great point because you know you could say that's your friends and family, and sometimes not, and sometimes it is, but we don't maybe honor those roles and give people the shape of those roles in our lives and Sometimes something I read earlier this year and a totally unrelated thing was like, when you give people a role, when you ask people for help, you give them a role, you help them understand who they could be to you. And I think that framing of like what help is, is so instructive that it, it can be useful to other people in your life to know how to help and support you. So awesome. yeah, it'd be great if we all had that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Have you found that this has actually shaped some of the other things going on in your life and what you think about in terms of support and what it means and how you see it showing up? Yeah, it has. I think that it's definitely made me more open and, you know, even in the recent few months, there have been some losses in my life and they've been difficult and I've had the ability to share them, I think in a way that I wouldn't have before, but I also feel a greater sense of connection to like the universal current of grief and loss that is part of living. And, you know, I don't wish that on anyone. I didn't wish it for myself, but in the same space, I feel like I'm deepening into a common understanding of what it is to just be a human trying to figure out this life and being in relationship to others so absolutely I think it's opened a different space of vulnerability and also a different space of context and like camaraderie like feeling that I'm part of a cycle that we all embark on mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you mentioned you said something beautiful that I can't remember the exact words, but the great well of grief or, you know, the, this, <laughs> I, I started thinking about grief as this, you know, river, I, I float down <laughs> through so much of life. And you remind me of one of the reasons, you know, we need doulas all the time is all the grief we have to manage is just part of life. Yes. And I think it manifests in so many places where we don't necessarily acknowledge it. And so that, that extension to all of life feels really fitting because we have grief in our friendships. We have grief at our jobs. There's, there's loss all around us. Right. And of course, we don't frame birth doulas as, you know, someone supporting you in grief, but I think it applies even there because it's such a, massive transition in life and all transitions are going to bring some form of grief because it's change and mm -hmm. um, I think that's the part that's hard for me to remember anyways is that even good things that happen still require some grieving sometimes maybe all the time absolutely in our training program that's one thing that they brought out is that the opposite of death isn't life the opposite of death is birth like those are the transitional moments when we arise and when we depart but in between is all life so death is not the opposite of life which is it very much underscores that point and maybe is why there are doulas popping up at those corners right. the most <laughs> because those are those quintessential transitions and maybe you know so you talk about mediumship like, but before and after really Right. Totally. Yeah. It's interesting because I just feel there's something 
related between mediumship and and doula ship doula ing i don't know what the correct word is i don't i it's hard to kind of put into words and you know it's not that much on paper but i actually have a friend who's a, a professional psychic and also does doula work she she calls a lot of her work doula for artwork so she works with artists and writers to help them bring forth their projects um which i just am reminded of that uh is interesting and i mean mediumship often tends to be about like sharing communication and it's very communication based um but i love the frame you put up about support and you know expanding past just you know a single communication or one sitting um but how about a larger framework of support because you know communication without anything is it's kind of odd, you know? Well, yeah. And as you said, you know, the intersection between dueling and medium-ing, mediumship, <laughs> not mediuming, you just said it. But one of the hardest things for me, truly, not to know intellectually, but to understand personally, is that at the core of doula work is being. It, it's not doing. It's not taking someone through a list of questions. It's not filling out a checklist about how you want your vigil. It is truly being the most present you can be with somebody and allowing what is there to arise, which I feel like is very close to what I imagine mediumship is. And I think that that is also a really powerful form of support to give somebody your full attention, to be completely present. I mean, how often do we get that in our day-to-day -day lives where you get the undivided attention of somebody around something that you think is important? Right, absolutely. That's actually, not to take us on a totally different tangent, but that I spend a lot of time thinking about mediumship and if it should be something that um, I do as a job, right? Or anybody does as a job, but thinking of it in my own terms. and. That, that people pay for basically. And when I really got to the heart of it, I'm like, I'm sitting and giving all of my attention to a person for however long. And that's hard and isn't something, I mean, it's a beautiful thing to do for free and for friends and, you know, in service. And it's also hard and a job. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And valuable. I would argue one of the most valuable things that you can give somebody because none of us get to choose how much time we have to give attention to other people in our lives. You are giving the most precious commodity that you have to another person. Mm. It's true. And it's, it's not, it's just not that common. I feel like anymore to, to get to do that. Um, it's yeah, because we have so little, I, little time, I suppose it just, it's really hard. And it, it's actually, you're reminding me that it's a really beautiful practice, no matter what you're doing it for. If you, you know, back to interviewing, right. You're giving someone all your attention in that time. And it is it's a beautiful practice. Yeah, I agree. And I think capitalism, I'm not going to get into it for all its shortcomings. There are plenty of shortcomings, but I think one of the biggest ones is that it misallocates what's valuable. And I don't think that if you do care work or support work or doula work, that that should be separate from your ability to earn money if you want it to be, because it is incredibly valuable work. And that is sort of the lexicon of at least American society is value for money. And you're absolutely giving somebody a value if that's how you wish to approach your practice. I think that it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And how about for you? I know we both have our, our regular careers and it's plenty to do there, but we both love this other thing. Mm -hmm. And how are you bringing it into your life? 
<laughs> so you no waited question. to ask the hard question. I waited so till the end. minutes in, you're doing an excellent job. <laughs> How am I doing? Great, great question. It's really challenging. Honestly, I, I haven't yet made a choice to monetize the work that I do at the end of life. I'm thinking about ways to do that, but not in ways that would support my overall existence. So it feels very side project and incidental to the way I make a living, which then makes it hard because it will be one of the first things that falls away. Um, so I try, I've been doing trainings, I go to talks, I, I'm a volunteer at the Zen Hospice Center again. So I'm back in hospice there and I started to do some coaching. So the end of life doula program that I took six months and the first half of it was around coaching around conscious dying so really just having conversations with people about different parts of their life whether it's their physical self their spiritual self the type of legacy they want to leave and having conversations with them about that in a way that they can share some of those thoughts with others in advance of a moment like an acute moment or in the context of an illness. So I've been doing that with people in my community too. And those are my two main touch points into, into this work right now. Wow. I, I love it. This is so cool and so needed. I feel like many, many people could use this kind of support. I mean, I could see myself needing that and like I said before dueling in all parts of life because I could you know I regardless of closeness to death or illness or anything actually even an illness that is non um uh, what's the word like non-terminal you know yeah. chronic illness mm -hmm. that's just yeah. something you live with for example I um I could see it being really helpful to to have have support because it totally changes your life. Um, yeah. I would say, like I had mentioned, you know, birth is the opposite of death and we live in between. Contemplating your death is really a contemplation of your life mm -hmm. and how you want to live, regardless of whether you have an indeterminate amount of time or whether you have a terminal diagnosis and you know the finite amount of time. I think the exercise of thinking about your death can allow you to think about how you're gonna live for whatever that time truly is. And so I think that's really what the value is. I can say for personal experience, my father now has very advanced dementia and he was never really someone who would tell you very much. You know, this isn't all perfect. Not everyone wants to have these conversations. He certainly didn't. But now at the end of his life, it's like, damn, I wish I knew. I wish I knew so many of these things that are now locked away that I won't know. And I think it is a gift to other people in your life to be able to commute, communicate some of the things that are important to you before you might not be able to, because it really gives people a roadmap to what might make you comfortable, to what you might prefer, to how you would ideally like things to go, even if they can't end up being ideal. It's a starting point. Wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. So are you taking any clients right now? Or <laughs> I'm sure there are people listening that would love to, to work with you or learn more. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely welcome questions, interest, et cetera. That would be wonderful. Um, my website is my name, Chioma Ume. So dot com. <laughs> And my email's there too. It's also chiyomaume at gmail. So it's very easy for you to be able to find me if you're interested. I'd love to hear from you. Right. I'll put a link in the show notes too that so people can just click on that. Oh, it's been so wonderful to talk with you. I feel like I want to do this again already because this is just, you're such a ray of light. Thank you so much. And before we go, is there anything else you've thought of or um, that you want to bring up or questions you have for me? I guess now at the end of all of this, I'm curious what 
what you think the biggest connection is to a mediumship practice like from this conversation, what it has been for you? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I'd like to say, or the, the obvious thing was sort of interview skills, right? Like an ability to, to ask questions and listen for answers. But I think the bigger context of how you get to that place, like how do you even get there? It's a mindset and it's this curiosity. And that is really the most important thing. That's what's brought me to mediumship. That's what keeps me into it over and over. Just this like, I mean, it's just wild. And I'm so curious, like what, like, what can I find out there in this world? I mean, research is the same for me. I just love it because we're just like people telling you about their lives. And then the idea that spirits or non-human entities can tell me about their lives. Like, I mean, that's just, it's next level. <laughs> so, yeah. So maybe it's really beautiful. Well, oh, thanks. It also makes me think, and not to open another thing, but that sense of like all the places you can get input from. We've talked about people and non-human entities, but the natural world yes. is around us too and sending us messages all the time. So you made me think of that and um, I'm gonna take that with me. Yeah. And the <laughs> body. In this conversation. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Totally. So many places to get signals. Mm -hmm. Totally, it's, it's really true. Well, Chioma, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been a really great conversation. I appreciate the invitation. All right, talk soon. Bye. Sounds good. Bye.